Interesting, you asked the question, King. <laughs> Here we are sitting in a Musa share and we have in front of us a Gemara open on Brochus Daf Hayamud Aleph. Why would we want to do that? Surely we're studying Musa, and isn't Musa that own kind of little science out there on the side which doesn't somehow connect with Torah? It's the psychology part of Judaism. So that's where you're wrong, John. <laughs> <laughs> rather, rather. Um, Musa is an integral part of Torah. Not only is it an integral part of Torah, but the truth is, it's a facilitator to the study of Torah. Because what we actually learned a few days ago, and, and I think, I think you would have, I was actually sorry you missed it, because we're discussing uh, the whole notion of self and how it, the notion of self transcends speech, emotion, and even thought, and that one of the deepest um, foundations of the Jewish realization of self self is the journey to a place where you can find the being that you are independent of the presentation into the world, independent of the way you think, the way you talk, the way you act, independent of what happened in the past or what will happen in the future. There's this, this, is this ultimate presence of the now whereby you purely connect to the state of existence, the raw, the raw state <coughs> of being. And we explored that and said that, that that forms a foundation point in a person's development thereafter. Because if he can't connect to that source, so it's very difficult to extract his manifestation of self from a real place. And the return to the source is this reconnection to something which completely, completely transcends the fallibilities and the inadequacies of all the things which confine and inhibit, that trap us in emotional and conceptual cages and take the jailer who takes on different personas has us locked there so safely that we never think to escape from the cage these little paradigm prisons which keep us focused on things which in the little paradigm that we trap ourselves in seem so relevant whereas in the biggest picture of things they are completely tangential in the thrust there whereby life should be going in a petrifying thought something which should keep you deeply uninspired for weeks. So now let's go on to this Gemara and follow some more, some more, some more pathways of open up some more avenues to depression. Says the Gemara, only joking, one avenue to depression. Amir <laughs> Blavi, again, only joking. Amir Blavi. So now this Gemara says something. Now what I want to do now is I want to try to do something which is um, a crucial point. Daniel, you'll find this is that many people in the modern Torah culture well-meaning approach the study of the classical ethical texts and they walk away disappointed and frustrated. The person on my right was one of those people. Don't mean to pick on him. Um, <laughs> but I am. And the, the, uh, you deserve it. The reason, the, the reason, <laughs> we all do, the reason, the reason why this happens is because people don't have the sophisticated capacity to analyze a text to the level whereby it will become relevant to their lives. So instead, they leave the text in a place where it doesn't speak to them at all. There's no dialogue between them and the text. It doesn't communicate them. And these valuable messages, which are hidden over by many, many layers, which need to be taken off, are left um, completely discarded. And instead, people seek the modern gurus to feel to sense some type of, to satiate their soul with some type of erzatz, chicken soup. <laughs> which is tragic. Tragic. Here you have a tradition which was given by God himself on the Mount Sinai 3,000 years ago. And because some wannabe hero 
invented himself and a self-help movement along with him. Now you always go and you lust after him. I mean, isn't that the most pathetic thing you ever heard in your entire life? Apart from other things. <laughs> so, so what we're going to do is we're going to do something very strange now. We're going to read through a text and our, upon first reading, the text will be completely and utterly removed from our comprehension and what the reality of life is all about and what we're going to try to do now this is a very organic process because I have not come in here with an agenda sometimes I come into a lesson where I know what I'm going to say albeit rare but most times we allow the lessons to develop from themselves and in the course of the discussion and engagement we try to find the jewels beneath the surface and that's exactly what we're going to do over here so I have no idea if we'll be able to get to the bottom of what's been conveyed to us over here but we're certainly going to try and therefore together we go on this journey and let's hope we make some progress says the commander I'm a Rebbe Levy so these are the name of two classic sages, one called Levi Barcham and the other Reb Shimon Lakish, who are major players within the Talmudic world. And this statement, obviously Levi Barcham being a pupil, his name mentioned first, of Reb Shimon Lakish, who was the Rebbe, the Rabbi. So you have the Talmud saying in the name of his Rebbe. Levi Barcham heard this in the name of Reb Shimon Lakish, and he's conveyed this idea to us. Now what he's doing is, he's going to use a scriptural verse to be a assistance to an entire approach of addressing oneself and seeking self-dominion. One of the most crucial points which occupies the arena of Jewish thought is the notion of the self-mastery. <coughs> self-mastery. In order to be able to properly comprehend self-mastery, one has to have clear ideas of what self and mastery both mean. Without the notion of those uh, precise definition of both those concepts, so then it remains something which is vague and can be interpreted in a number of different ways, and perhaps what may be labeled as self-mastery in the outside world, in the context of Torah, may be labeled as, on the contrary, it may be labeled as something as the sacrifice of self. So it comes along with Levi Barchoma in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish and he puts across a fascinating point. He says, Lo'olam. Lo'olam means always. And we're going to go through the text because it's crucial that we engage the text and try to find the pearls hidden beneath it and not just make it up as we go along. Lo'olam, always, always. Yargiz Adam, Yargiz. Yargiz is the Hebrew word which denotes anger the causal form. A person should cause to be angry. Who? A person should make angry. Who should he make angry? He should make angry often translated as the good inclination. He should anger his good inclination on the anger should be directed towards his evil inclination. So the first level of the struggle for the dominion of self takes place between the two arch enemies. In terms of the self in the Jewish presentation, there are two warring forces which exist within the persona. Man by his very nature is going to be prone to conflict in his life. If there is no conflict, a person has one of two options. 
either he's become the angel or the devil. When I say the devil, I'm using it in a very loose way. <laughs> Not to mean the devil. In other words, the only way conflict ceases to exist is when the powers of good have triumphed or the powers of evil. But the nature of man is that that struggle lasts for a lifetime. But do not fall into the trap of misrepresenting the struggle and understanding that the battle between the forces of good and evil is akin to the way it's presented in the epic of J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. That would be an error. That would be a deep error. When J.R.R. Tolkien presents his vision of the princes of light fighting against Saur and the Dark Lord. Dark Lord. So his presentation is as follows. In the climactic moments of the book, yes, it's a book as well, of the book, what happens is there's uh, the tension that the author creates within us, the readers, is there's a deep chance that the Dark Lord will win and he will triumph over the forces of goodness forever. And because of that threat, this could really happen, so the tension almost is palpable towards the end of the book when finally, to our relief, <laughs> sorry for those who haven't read it, the forces of light <laughs> triumph. That presentation of the battle, which of course there are many interpretations to Tolkien's books, they were written immediately after the Second World War and there are those that want to ascribe metaphorical <coughs> significance to the different forces. However, he himself denied any interpretive message within the book and he said it was purely pure fantasy. But then again, only the true Messiah denies his existence. I am, I am. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. He was born in Bloemfontein. Uh, yeah, small little town in the Orange Free State, province of South Africa. But again, let's not get distracted by Tolkien and his focus on the topic. The topic is, topic is Takawat. The topic is a fight of evil against good and good against evil. In Tolkien's presentation, what happens is there's a real sense that the forces of evil and good are equally pitted against one another and either one could triumph. That presentation of the battle between light and dark between the forces of goodness and evil is an antithetical presentation in the realm of Torah. In Torah, the way the battle of good and evil is carried out, there is never a chance that evil may triumph. Evil cannot win. Because ultimately, in the grander sense, evil himself is a servant of the prince of lightness and hence when the story of creation is written about in the Chumash and the final day of creation occurs before the Sabbath and the resting takes place the description of the creation of man is called the description of man is described as toiv meaning good ma'oid meaning very and the Midrashic interpretations explain that the word tov refers to the good inclination and the word ma'od very good refers to the evil inclination because in the Jewish perspective there is nothing better than the Yetzirah that may sound strange surely you hear constantly the rabbis 
decrying the fate of those prone to the eight Zahoras, the eight Zahoras painted as the arch enemy, the evil inclination, the force of darkness, seems to be absolutely relegated and disdained. And here we have the verse itself giving it the ultimate value. Tov Ma'od, it's the best thing in the world. Why is it the best thing in the world? The truth is, it is the best thing in the world. Because the conflict is what gives us our humanity. Because there's something which opposes us, our victory has meaning. It's significant. If there would be no resistance, so we'd be robotic, instinctive, angelic, but not meaningful. No purpose. No notion of reward and punishment. No significance to our actions. We would just be robotic manifestations of a higher being. What is he needed for? So the creation of evil is the ultimately good thing that facilitates goodness. And that's why when it says over here, the battle described over here is a battle which needs to be fought, which is in constant conflict. And the opponent is the one that gives us our humanity, ironically. So let's go further in the text. And then we bring a scriptural proof to this. Rigzu, which means be angered, and do not come to sin. Now the word hate, even though it's translated into English as sin, of course, the Hebrew implication is nothing of the kind. One of the greatest problems that we are confronted by um, when trying to approach a Torah text is the limitations of language. Just as paradigms keep us imprisoned in certain modes of thinking, so too do languages. A language carries with it connotations, values and meanings. And therefore, essentially, without an accurate knowledge of the Hebrew tongue, it is almost impossible to come to a true understanding of the wisdom of Torah. Because if a person translates the word chait as sin, it arises, what arises in his mind are connotations of fire and brimstone preachers speaking in perhaps heavy, heavy western drawls about a person's ultimate damnation and the evil of sin, which of course in the Jewish context is completely foreign and abhorrent in truth. The word chait in its true Hebrew etymology doesn't refer to misdeed but to missing the target. In fact, the expression to miss the target is called lahti et hamatara, missing the target. Chait means a deviation of direction. When you're going along a straight path and you get drawn off course, you stop becoming true to the path upon which you are treading, that is where the word chait comes from. So it is rigzu, anger yourself, va'al and then you will not be able to be deviated. You will not be able to be drawn off on a tangent, much like Ulysses, who is trapped by the sound of the siren. You all aware of? Some of you are aware of. One person. <laughs> Time to brush up on your Greek mythology. Now, 
homeless classics. That's the first statement in this particular cryptic piece of text. What we have to understand, of course, is the definitions of what exactly does Yetzir Tov and Yetzir Hara mean, and what is the mechanic of anger, and how you would incite your part of self, known as Yetzir Tov, against the part of self, known as Yetzir That's a very extremely, it seems an extremely complex internal process to initiate. You're initiating it. It's purely proactive. How can a person do that? What type of mechanism would that require? And how would that pan out in a practical level? What does it mean? You wake up in the morning and you face falls with fury because of some crap. What does it mean? We need to bring it down from the highest conceptual level and then filter it down slowly, slowly, slowly until we can actually translate it into an absolutely, powerfully, seemingly mundane act. Because the irony of Judaism is, and this is what people often miss, just as in the world the nature and the solidity of reality isn't based on big chunky things but on millions of molecules, atoms which are imperceptible to the seen eye, to the naked eye you need an electron microscope to even see them and the way that we function as human beings is based on a series of cell reactions which also are invisible it's because the tiny minute things are the building blocks of creation. Judaism accentuates and venerates the minute. Those tiny, small, seemingly insignificant actions are the material which builds up the fabric of your life. And if a person focuses on the grandiose expressions of kindness, he welcomes 3,000 orphans to his home in a show of ultimate hospitality that is not the true barometer of his greatness but how he thanks his wife when they've left the home <laughs> so the native Judaism is that it's made up of small actions and therefore when we study a Musa text the crucial emphasis is to be able to translate the deepest and most powerful the most spiritually potent ideas into a tiny little action and another tiny little action until those tiny little actions form the reality and the power of ourselves. Continues with the Gemara and says, Im Nitzchoi Mutav. So now, it now describes a victory. Im Nitzchoi Mutav. If the victory is successful, that through this process, which we have to still explore, victory was gained, the triumph was reached, Mutav, all is good. The im love, and if not, we go into a second option. Yasok b'Torah. Strangely enough, the second option moves away from this battle which ensues between these two opposing forces, and becomes what one would perhaps think is an intellectual exercise, which is the occupation in the study of Torah. Shenemar im b'vavchem. Now, from a psychological perspective the next step of moving forward in a person's battle against evil inclination seems to be completely out of place because the battlefield upon which the struggle is taking place is in the psyche of the self it's in the world of one would think emotion and experience so how would 
a departure to the realm of the cognitive and the intellectual deal with the issue. And yet the second step that the Gemara advocates is being occupied in the study of Torah. So seemingly there's something missing in terms of how we interpret the study of Torah because if it is as it seems to be an intellectual exercise to plumb the depths of a given idea which is no different in its practice to any type of philosophical discussion it would be strange why that type of intellectual discussion would bring about an emotional change because as we know in the words of Bertrand Russell (laughs) the most quoted Bertrand Russell in the religious world in fact many people only know of Bertrand Russell since they became religious and because of this quote Bertrand Russell, a professor of ethics in Philly and the Missing, Cambridge, Oxford uh, uh, I believe it was Cambridge but again, if you come from Oxford or Cambridge and I get it wrong, you'll hold it against me for the rest of my life but he was a professor of ethics and he was known for his unethical behaviour especially with um, young students upon being asked about the contradiction of what he preaches and what he practices he replied and said what? and if I would be a mathematician would I have to be a triangle? which is definitely something which is a consistent approach anyone that doubts this please refer yourself to Paul Johnson's work The Intellectuals that intellectual intellectual capacity and the ability to fathom deep ideas even of the most moral and supremely high ethical value will not modify modify behavior behavior can remain primitive and animalistic while the mind can venture to the highest places so therefore in terms of that model it seems strange that if a person can't defeat his evil desires through a process of engaging in them why would it help to engage in the intellectual nevertheless that's the path that this particular statement takes based on the verse and it says the next stage which is now stage three if this works then that's good and if this doesn't work a person should read Kriyat Shema now Kriyat Shema is an interesting verse which embodies the saying of Shema embodies the major fundamental principle of all Judaism and that is the unity of the world under the guidance of the Creator. Krishma is a declaration, a acknowledgement, a coming to terms with the fact that the separateness that we see and the division that we behold within the created world is illusory that underneath the surface there exists a deeper unity which combines everything together and essentially what Krishna brings to the fore is the idea we mentioned previously in regard to the struggle between good and evil there aren't two opposing forces in the ultimate sense they are complementary and that's the acknowledgement of unity that the two powers don't compete with one another in the ultimate sense but in fact complement and that is true of absolutely everything in the world the decaying leaves create the rebirth of the plant in the soil one animal's food is another one's life 
and so too the ecosystem functions. So therefore you see within the world, the natural world, and certainly within the spiritual world, the diversity is somewhat um, a camouflage to the hidden unity. And that's what Shema Yisrael is all about. It's this declaration, this strong affirmation of the way this world, and somehow on that level, which is level number three, when a person is feeling desperate in his struggle for self, and he feels like he's losing the battle against the evil nation, and the original two methods didn't help, so this kind of jolting realization will do something to stead him in the right path, but we don't yet understand why and how that works. And finally, we have the last option, in if that works, the reference in the verse. If that works, well, that's great. Vim love, but if that doesn't work, Yizkor law, it should be remembered to him, Yom Hamita, the day of death. So now we bring in as the last measure a person's acknowledgement of his own mortality. Now, this is a fascinating point because the composition of man is ironically paradoxical. He's been given the desire which is more passionate than any other in his life and that is the will to live. And the will to live dominates his every waking moment and there's no more desperate act than an act of a man whose life is threatened. Because the deepest desire we have inside ourselves is the desire to live and the deepest fear is that of death. Because that's the precise contradiction to our deepest desire. Now the irony of human existence is that the desire to live and the fear of death are two polar opposites which threaten our stability throughout our lives. Because ultimately the nature of the world is that please God, after 120 years, every man meets his maker, shuffles off his mortal coil and ascends to, we hope, a higher realm. So mortality is a reality. And therefore your deepest desire ultimately will be squelched, trodden on, and not realized. That's bizarre. That's bizarre. That we have this passionate desire for something we can never get, which is life in its ultimate sense. Essentially, our lives are one long terminal disease. So our deepest aspiration will always be disappointed. However, according to a model that we want to adopt and a deeper perception of the internal self, I would like to suggest, as an initial reading of this piece, that that deepest desire is something which can easily be realized. And when the Mishnah over here, sorry, the statement over here requires the memory requires the memory of the day of death the point of the process is not to terrify us with mortality but to engage us in the notion of immortality because the day of death is the way of the sages saying realize that the transition from mortality to death is simply a change of clothing, not a termination. That death is a new state whereby the 
physical encumbrances which held down the soul from its flight are removed and the spiritual can access and connect to its true source so the notion of Judaism is a presentation of the desire to live as fundamental to our being and as not being contradicted by death because the desire to live in its deepest and truest sense is the desire for eternal life which is something which is planted in each and every one of us and ironically that life begins after physical life ends and therefore the remembrance of death creates an awareness of the deeper part of a person's person's being which transcends the physicality and extends him to a level of connection with self whereby his interpretation of who he is as a person doesn't have to manifest itself through what I can do and what I can say and what I can affect but rather by what I am anyway that's an initial reading of the Mishnah Memra and will terminate of course when I say end I really mean begin the study through its conclusion thank you gentlemen for your apt attention